You keep an eye on him, Robin. I'll go after her. Right. You'll never find my keys when I really need them. Going my way? I wish I were Batman. But we're fated to travel in different directions. You on the straight and narrow, and me on the crooked and wide. This is finally fucking Project Challenged. <laughs> we got a late start tonight. I'm your host, Doug Lund, joined as always by Eric G. Hollis. And for the first time on Project Challenged, I have my two oldest friends, Carl Lundin, here in Denver, on the mic. We're going to talk about all kinds of shit tonight, but I think the thing that we need to start with is probably weighing on all of our minds and hearts. Fucking Adam West. Yeah. Was he both of y'all's first Batman? He is mine, besides Justice League. On the screen, my first Batman was uh, the animated series. Yeah. Really. Super Friends. And I don't know that I count Super Friends because that wasn't my Batman. That was a Batman that hung out with a bunch of other characters. Uh, Honestly, he's not the one that I remember most from that series at all. Didn't Adam West do the voice of Batman on the Super Friends episodes? I know Casey Kasem was Robin. I thought he did at least a couple of them. Is that right? Maybe. I, I might just be completely making that up. Maybe he did it in the Scooby-Doo episodes. That's definitely true. I think that that may be it. And Phyllis Diller did Catwoman? (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Phrasing. (laughs) Different production studio. (laughs) That's an awkward fucking start, but the point remains. Adam was not only an iconic Batman, a very pure Batman, a lot of people's favorite Batman, a lot of people's first Batman, and still an endearing presence on the TV screen up until if and when due to his illness, he might have stopped doing Family Guy episodes, but was probably my favorite character on that show for a long time just because of the deadpan way that he, he played it. He played Adam West. Yeah. That's why he played Adam West. He played the caricature version of Adam West on that show that everybody loved. I mean, besides Justice League, of course, he's the first time I really saw Batman. I I loved when those episodes uh, came back in my youth. I still like Batman 66, as it's now called. Yeah, it's kind of sad, man. You know, all it means is we're getting older. I was driving out here today to do this with you guys, and I saw the news, and I was thinking a lot about that. I was thinking about how these characters live on in syndication as well, and You know, Batman's still on. I think it's DTV that has the rights to it. And they have like Superhero Friday Night where it's Wonder Woman back to back with Batman episodes. And and I'm sure you guys probably remember this from when you were kids when they would run them in syndication at three o'clock in the afternoon. You'd come home and you'd get the one two episode because there was always the cliffhanger that tied the two episodes together. And I have kind of a funny story about this. We didn't have it in syndication where I grew up, but when I was a kid, I would go with my grandparents uh, every summer to visit my aunt up in Wisconsin. There were two things I cared about on that trip. Toys R Us and the fact that they had Batman from three to four o'clock on one of the local stations. I was, you know, seven, eight at the time when I would go back and forth with them. And I was just enraptured with it. It was Batman for real. Batman on the screen. And it still plays today. It's great that we have so much footage of him doing it, and that I think it lives on. I think kids will still enjoy that for years and years to come. Agreed. And fortunately, in Adam's case, it wasn't one where we lost him too soon. Apparently, he'd been sick for a while. Dude made it to 88. If I make it within 10 years of that, I'll be happy. He will leave a legacy, uh, a legend, the first to probably take the character to that level. In any case, the beers tonight are in dedication to Adam West. Absolutely. Pour one for our bat homie, right? Eric, uh, what are you drinking in honor of Adam tonight? I'm trying Anchor Brewing out of uh, San Francisco, so a non-Colorado beer here on the cast. And it's called Mango Wheat, and it's really good. Right up my alley. (laughs) 
Jesus. Tonight's nothing but air. <laughs> uh, nothing but air. It's a 4.5, so it's a little lighter beer. I really like the taste. I'm digging it. What are you drinking? I'm drinking the same thing. I followed your lead. That was a horrible transition. Carl, what are you drinking? Um, So I am not a beer fan. I switched over to the hard stuff quite some time ago. So my current poison of choice is whiskey, particularly bourbon. I'm actually drinking 10 cup. It's 42% by volume. And it's... uh, So it's a touch more than what you guys are having. And it's from a place here in Denver. It's 10 Cup Whiskey, Denver, Colorado. It's good stuff. I had it a couple years ago. Um, it has no relation that I'm familiar with to Kevin Costner. You know, yeah, it's good stuff. <laughs> well, at least you're drinking local. Appreciate yeah, that. That was important. There's a reason we don't drink bourbon on Project Challenge. Yeah. We like to stay coherent. Eric doesn't care for whiskey. I would be even less intelligible than I am right now, three, four beers in. How many are you in? Six. I had a long day, dude. Let's just leave it at that. We've got Carl here, and we've got a lot of good stuff to talk about. We do. And before we jump into that, we need a rating. Sure. I got to ask you a question. Is the reference to the earlier episode, the friend with the name? Caliban. (laughs) Caliban. Fucking uh, Mr. Fucking uh, Alabaster. (laughs) Alabaster. The Alabaster Man. Yeah, there was actually a character in our game today called the Alabaster Man. He looked like powder. <laughs> he did. He had... <laughs> oh, God. Powder. <laughs> there's so many minefields here. That's a trigger for Carl. Like, there's powder. 17 different things that he wants to say right now. And I've heard them all 17,000 times, but our yeah. listeners won't. Probably the biggest minefield for me. I'm going to have to shut up and let Carl do his thing Wait, wait, wait. There's 17 things you want to say about powder right now? I don't want to sleep in the car tonight, so <laughs> I'm going to let that one lie. No, uh, do your no, thing. No, 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 no. If it's no, funny no, no, no. and it won't get me a divorce, then we'll see how it plays. I can always fucking cut it. No, That's the beauty I'd like to think audio. I'm a good interviewer, but that was a complete dart shot <sighs> <No>. that obviously <laughs> nailed. <laughs> We'll cogitate on that one for a little bit. What else do you want to talk about? Okay. I, first, I need your rating on your drink. Out of five, that whiskey. And I assume you sample lots of different types. I do. And uh, the tin cup is a... I'm going to give it a, a solid four. A four. Yeah. Knowing that like Woodford and Knob are fives for me and Beam is a two, this is a four. Before I get to Eric's beer rating, what to you qualifies a, a five rating for a whiskey? Like, What's the differentiator there? That's a good question. I like a caramely taste in the whiskey. I recently found one called Larceny, which the name alone, you got to try it. It's it's freaking Larceny, right? And it seems to have kind of a higher, I don't even know that it's caramel. Maybe it's just the corn mash is a little different. And so it's a little bit of a sweeter taste. I'm a fan of mixing my whiskeys with diet because it helps cut the sugar that's in the in the whiskey. And Larceny and Diet Dr. Pepper is the fucking elixir of the gods as far as i'm concerned so well dr pepper's disgusting so i don't know what gods you pray to but powder (laughs) 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 so you're definitely a bourbon versus a rye i guess is probably yeah 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 yeah, yeah. rye i'm not a whiskey i'm not a fan of i can tolerate rye oddly enough with a little bit of club soda in it like bullet rye is okay with club soda but rye straight or rye is a mix it's got kind of this like metallic-y finish on it that I've never been a fan of. I like the semi-sweet caramel finish on bourbon. I think whiskey, bourbon in particular, overpowers everything else to where... Like your job and your life. Yeah, exactly. Those things too. <laughs> right. But I was thinking more like vodka. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it overpowers other alcohol to where, you know, unless you're mixing something that's like a specific festive like a mojito where you specifically have to have like a white rum or something, just your run-of-the-mill Friday night drink, like regular rum and Coke just tastes like paint thinner and water to me now. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. I should acknowledge it's a little weird to be asking Carl questions like in an interview type capacity, like, tell me what you think about whiskey, since I've known Carl for so damn long, almost as long as I've known you, Eric. For the listeners that aren't aware, Carl was my debate partner in high school. I met him my freshman year, and uh, we've been pretty good friends almost ever since. Yeah. Except for when Doug's an asshole and goes incommunicado for a couple of years at a time. Did that coincide with the Powder Blu-ray release? (laughs) It, uh... 
Oh, shit. I had something for this, too. <laughs> Wait for it. Oh, well, I guess I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> Damn. As a third party, while I was sitting here sound testing earlier, seeing you two sit down and play a video game together almost gave me the same level of goosebumps as it was the first time I saw my boys sit down and play a video game. It was, uh, I guess, kind of a seminal moment. Two people who have been so important to my life in different ways and in many ways that that overlap. It's one of the reasons I've been so eager to make this happen. I'm going to shut up for a little bit and let you guys talk about Injustice, and then we'll get into what Eric's playing right now. So you got to play two fights. What do you think so far as a big DC fan? I think it's really cool. I think the depth of the characters that are available to you is incredible. I think that's one of the neatest things about it. Uh, You know, for instance, like I immediately went to Dr. Fate just because I thought it was so neat that someone had thought that that was a character that was worthwhile to include in that kind of a gaming platform. So the graphics are absolutely amazing. I think I would pick it up. You know, we were talking earlier, I've kind of unique and finicky tastes when it comes to the kinds of games that I play and the reasons that I play the games. And generally, head-to-head fight games are not really my thing, but the gameplay on it is really interesting. And just the diversity of characters means there's so many different levels and permutations to explore. So I liked it. And you have to think about other aspects because you game when you train, man. I have to talk about this because I've never met anyone... Not to say all gamers are lazy, but not all of us are, are biking 30 fucking miles while we're beating Arkham Asylum. Where does that all come from? Do you yeah. just need something to occupy your hands? Absolutely. Yeah. So just for a little bit of context, I, I do triathlons. Uh, the bug bit me a couple of years ago, and it's a sport of addiction. A little is never enough, and enough is never enough, so you keep going further and further and further. And that's when you guys see people on TV, and they're doing Ironmans, and you're like, how does a person get this crazy? It's because one hit of cocaine is never enough. You keep getting bigger and bigger. The problem with it is that the training begins to occupy more and more of your time. I live in Kansas City. I can't train outside all the time. And so I do a lot of training indoors on, um, on a trainer on my bike. A couple years ago, I figured out that when I'm down on my aero bars, because a triathlon bike, you know, you see them on TV, they're down tight on the bikes. I could hold a PlayStation remote while I was riding. So I started to get really selective about the kinds of games. You you, you gave me the term for it earlier. Auto-aim is the Auto-aim. term I use. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'm very outside of the scope of a conventional gamer. I, I look for things that allow for auto-aim because... You know, I'm riding a bike at 20 miles an hour. I don't have as much fine motor control as you need to play a lot of conventional video games. So I look for things that have that kind of auto-aim functionality that I can do while I'm riding. And I can honestly tell you that the Batman series of games got me to a point to do two Ironman competitions. If you look at the odometer on my bike, there's about 12,000 miles on my odometer. And I would say all but about 500 of those miles were in my basement either playing one of the infamous titles because they're auto-aim and Batman titles. So my litmus test for good gaming is, can I do it while I'm riding a bike at 20 miles an hour? Why isn't there more of this? There's no way you're the first guy that's thought of this. And if you are, you need to capitalize. Yeah, completely. you know, it's funny because it's kind of my shtick, you know, whether I'm in uh, like a triathlon store talking to somebody or in a video game store, and everybody looks at me like I'm from Mars when I tell this story. It is really interesting because if you're into that sport and you read the forums and that kind of thing, the complaining about the boredom that people have putting in the miles on their bike indoors, that's all that they do because they're, you know, they've all burned through Netflix and it just doesn't do it for them. But I found that if you play video games, like you cognitively check out. I can do 40 miles, takes me a little over two hours. And and I look up and I've like been in a state of fugue, you know, I lost time for, you know, two hours playing Batman. And I don't know, in all honesty, if I can maintain my training schedule, because I do about two hours a day without having the engagement of the video game in conjunction with the bike. It's weird, the marriage of those two things together. And maybe I doubt I'm the only guy, but I have not met any other ones. So You're familiar with Twitch, right? Yes. You ever thought about broadcasting while you're on the bike and playing a game? Because I agree with Eric, that's a niche that I don't think has uh, been filled yet. We talked a little bit about this earlier. I have great hope that VR and augmented reality is going to open a door where gaming does become a more physical activity for people. I think I think it has great potential to do so. 
a la Pokemon Go. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Pokemon Go. You know, you think, sure, people look like jackasses wandering around out in the field. <laughs> but, but for God's sake, you got kids up. You got them off a couch. You got them to go out into the world, albeit the augmented world, and do something. Maybe with mobile computing and tablet computing becoming what it is, the TV room in people's houses will go away. It's instead like the the holodeck, if you will, for that particular house. And, you know, your kids go and play video games and they come out sweaty. That's a great thing that maybe the thing that has hurt us in some respects ends up helping us, you know? Oh, and I don't think it stops there. I think you turn the entire surface of the planet into a video game. Absolutely. Like Pokemon Go did. And uh, I mean, I can envision where there's some kind of overlay to the world that has turned into some MMO, uh, an RPG, um, something that's got like a Ready Player One element to it. Even right. I, The possibilities are limitless. And when you make a kid, for example, have to chase something to catch it and then fight it. I yeah. mean, if you have to run for a half a mile just to catch up to something that, that you want because it's got some fucking badass drop or a, you know, a piece of loot in it, fuck yeah, kids are going to get out of the house and lose some weight and gain some muscle mass pretty right. quickly. They've always tried to incorporate fitness into gaming from the power pad to the Wii Fit right. to the Pokemon Go. As soon as they get it right, I think it's going to be crucial. They just haven't yet. Kids are fucking fickle, dude. They're spinning wheels around in their in their fingers right now. Right. If you give them something interactive like that, they'd love it. I'd love it. And you think about the next rational step that that takes then is kind of broadcasted sport event that's augmented reality. You know, I don't know where you guys stand on the subject of NASCAR, but from the perspective of like a television vehicle, pardon the pun, but you know, the, the television vehicle and the heads up display and all the rest of those things that they offer the viewer in that in that environment, it's a kind of augmented reality already for watching those sports. And and imagine if you create that for the average person. You know, you can create augmented reality sports where you've got you know, instead of the, the guy sitting there behind the controller in Vegas playing a game, you know, you have augmented reality sports where you're taking the games that kids are interested in, particularly the kids that sucked at football, that sucked at basketball, that went sedentary because they couldn't or weren't good enough at those things or didn't belong in that social circle. And you create a new medium for them to game in and to become healthy and fit. I think there's great potential in it. And the first steps are the VR and the augmented reality stuff we see now. I'm calling bullshit on you having ever watched a second of NASCAR footage. I have. A lot of it being... Accidentally? Well, you know, a lot of it being from the perspective of I work in television. I am constantly amazed by their ability to innovate and monetize the sport and to create an incredibly engaging environment for the people that want to watch it up to and including, you know, heads up displays within the cars and all kinds of sensory data and creating, you know, multi-channel viewing experiences. You where, can watch those left turns for yeah, hours. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, you know, you can watch all of the gauge readouts and the, the thresholds. This has always been my philosophy when it comes to the subject of NASCAR. From the perspective of the driver that is truly an athlete that does this, uh, from the perspective of the engineers and the mechanics and the, and the science of what these people do, I think this is an incredibly worthwhile endeavor. To your point... I absolutely cannot sit there and watch cars make left turns for three hours. But everybody else that has an actual stake in the activity, like I totally get why they're invested in the activity. And that, again, to my point about this idea of like augmented reality for, for kids, if you create that environment where they're invested in it, you know, maybe you sucker them into physical activity along with it. Of course, then we're going to end up on the other end of the spectrum pretty quickly. Anytime you enter addiction or an addictive action into the mix, then you end up with uh, kids that are literally running themselves to death because they can't put the game down for a few hours at a time to get some actual rest. I can already see the downside to this. And you're going to have to get it wrong how many times before you get it right? On the side where uh, kids are, are dying of fatigue? Well, they're going to fall down a lot faster than they think they are. That's the best version of a bad problem. I'm picturing that episode of The Simpsons. Something happens to where they all have to go outside and play. Beethoven's, I think it's the second, is playing while all the kids are going out and rediscovering all of the... Uh, is that the snow episode where Bart's got to write the paper and everybody else is outside? No. Something happens like TV stops working. It, something forces them outside. 
then as soon as that something ends, everyone runs back inside. But I'm picturing the pasty white kids that have been living in the basement playing games 24 hours a day, going out to try these new games, and they make it about powder. Yeah, the powders of the world making about <laughs> making about ten yards from the house and just fucking keeling over. I have to hear about powder, even if you want to turn we the can't. mics off for a second. <laughs> nope. it has something to do with eyebrows. That's all I'm gonna say. All right, and child molestation. I forgot that part. <laughs> well, I knew that. Wasn't that the director? Mostly eyebrows. Yeah. Wasn't that the director's thing? There was something to do with that. Was it the director? I think so. God, who fucking directed that movie? That's the guy that's in Boondock Saints, right? Sean Patrick Flannery. (laughs) Oh, shit. See, and I always think John Travolta's in that movie, and he's not. It's that Phenomenon and Powder came out at the same time. Powder-nomenon? Yeah, and they were kind of that same, like, you know, human being tapping new potential. That weird kid got lightning on him. And Thaden's attacked him or something. I don't know. (laughs) It always happens like in a rural town. Yep. No e-meters to deal with the problem. So have you been audited recently? No, but I tried to get Heather to be audited when we were in Santa Barbara on vacation a couple of years ago. Ooh, which is a known haven. Yeah. Of- and I was so pissed that she wouldn't do it. It's not her thing to go in and play with people's religious beliefs. So <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of something that a couple of years ago in my office, uh, we got into this little guerrilla warfare game where there was a couple of us that were just like trying to figure out the most messed up next thing to do to somebody. So, like, one guy ordered a Rascal Scooter demo for, like, the CEO of the company. I got a free Scientology audit, an on-site audit for, like, our sales manager. The guy shows up at the door with his little galvanic skin response machine to, to check Mike's e-meter levels. So, they'll make house calls if you want them to. You just got to sound sincere. Jeff Wellemeyer, if you're listening to this episode, Rascal is the name of the scooter that I was trying to figure out a couple days ago when we were having this same discussion. I couldn't remember that fucking name, so thank you. you. As seen on TV. Bugging me. I tried Googling, like, the scooter that fat people ride at Walmart, and it didn't turn up Rascal. (laughs) But that's what it is, right? You probably broke Google in the first place. (laughs) Like, it had a howl moment and just, like, shut down. (laughs) What do you mean, Doug? <laughs> I'm going to kill you, fat boy. While I was prepping dinner tonight, you guys had the opportunity to catch up on a topic that I know is uh, huge for you. Some context, Carl, I think, he was my first serious introduction to comic books, and it was by virtue of the fact... I where you were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. It was by virtue of the fact that uh, his uncle... It was your uncle, right, that owned the comic book store? I worked at a town crier, which was a bookstore that had comics. that had comic books in it. You know, um, we grew up in a small enough town, or I grew up there. Doug, Doug did high school there in a small enough town that I don't think we got our first comic book store till I think I was in college when the first comic book store finally legitimately opened. I called Town Crier the comic book store. Yeah, and because- it was. It was uh, for for those of you that are unfamiliar, like Town Crier now is strictly like a tobacco and 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 I think they do alcohol, but once upon a time... In Junction City, Kansas, you're talking about? No, 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 no. That's what it's turned into now. But once upon a time, Town Crier was a locally franchised bookstore that was in my hometown. It was in a lot of Midwestern small towns. I did not know that it was more than that one shop on what? Was it Washington Avenue? Yeah. Um, when I'm in Louisiana visiting Dean, I get my bourbon at uh, the Town Crier that's around the corner from me. That's so, weird. Yeah. I did not know so, this. When paper died, they had to figure out how to survive, and that's what they turned into. So The smack that Carl hooked me with, uh, we were talking about Gaiman earlier, too, and we will probably talk about Gaiman uh, on air now. Preludes and Nocturnes. It was the, the Sandman series, and that was the time that uh, the Death of Superman storyline was playing right. out, and that I remember was the first time since fifth, sixth grade that I remember that this art form, this median has some pretty cool shit going on. And I think it had started dwindling in popularity quite a bit in general. And it correct me if I'm wrong, but the death of Superman was a mechanism to get kids back into comic books. I think you have to look at two events prior to that. Really the dark Knight returns, obviously 86 or so, Watchmen in that same time period. But to your point, we're, we're talking about um, you know reinvesting in a next generation. The big one there that really opened the door even pre 
death of Superman was a death in the family when they killed off Jason Todd. Right. Between those events and then just the meteoric rise of Marvel in that early period of time just reinvested an entire generation in comic books. And there's something else on this point that I think is really interesting. It was also a time period when our parents started saying things to us like, take good care of those toys. Those might be worth money someday. The Star Wars phenomenon of this stuff is going to be worth money someday started to permeate through other sci-fi toys and collectibles and, and and obviously comic books squarely in that category. Baseball cards. Baseball cards. Same thing. There was a boon in baseball cards in the same time. And it's interesting you bring that up because I know nothing about baseball, no interest in baseball, but I absolutely remember that you're, you're right about that. You had a, a resurgence in tradable baseball cards. And I think it's the highest the comics market has ever been. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And it's also what- When Image it, came out, Death of Superman, those McFarlane, years- McFarlane, Spaghetti Spider-Man, you know? That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the highest- sales to this Spawn. day even when we look at how big the movies are comics did not sell like but, i love spawn but here's what's interesting about that though it's it it and it's actually why i brought up the toy angle and all this is that it also destroyed the value of comic books because Marvel and all these guys got really greedy and they did, you know, you need the gold, platinum, copper, Variant. silver, and adamantium covers for these ones. And and so, you know, people were buying these up as collectors and holding on to them and never opening them. And so that whole 90s era of comic books, I think there's probably, you know, it probably for our lifetime, actually, going to be this glut of those books sitting out there that will not be tradably worth any money to Doug's point, you know, when I worked in this bookstore in Junction City, Kansas, population 25,000 people, we had people reserve the death of the Superman copy. I put one under the counter for you. I still have it. Yeah. And that was, you know, huge. People coming in that had really no interest in comic books, you know, I bought 20 of them. <laughs> How many and do you still have? Five. Did you really? And Are you I, tr- I traded them away for like uh, Age of Extinction X Men versions and shit. Yeah, they were overvalued. At the time, so I was able to get a lot of X-Men books I wanted because people slept on it. Yeah, I bought 20 copies the day it came out. And, and I think that that industry as a whole kind of fucked itself in that time period because they they overhyped every event that they put into publication to try to drive the upfront value. I mean, Bane breaking Batman's back was in that same general time period. And it was a kind of that same run of Bruce Wayne's No Longer Batman and creating kind of that false sense that uh, we won't just break canon and reboot when we feel like it, that this is a real thing that's happening and it's worth real money because of it. And ultimately, like the only one in that category that I think bears any long-term cultural significance is killing off Jason Todd because A, it was a real instance of social media in a way the beginning of the concept of social media where you let audiences by way of the 1-800 number decide whether he lived or died. 1-900, right? 1-900, yeah. That concept of audience participation in the medium was a weird first alpha, if you will, of social media. And I think it's relevant as a cultural artifact for that reason. And because you killed a kid. He didn't accidentally fall down. He got beat to death with a freaking crowbar. And then blown up, right? Yeah, and then blown up. And ironically, has come back as one of the more interesting characters in the Batman canon at this point, Red Hood. One of the first downloadable characters for Injustice 2 by fan demand. You think about the fact that the whole Arkham Knight video game is built on the entire architecture of a revenge story of of a broken son. The whole game is about that. I think it's arguably the best game in the series. Some of that being graphics, combat engine, so on and so forth, but just... The compelling nature of the story was stronger, I think, than than any of the other ones in the Batman series. Did you like the Batmobile? I did. To borrow from Peter Griffin, it insisted upon itself. It insisted upon upon itself. itself. (laughs) I felt like it insisted upon itself. It was fun to drive it around and to to goof off with it. The mechanics were radical enough that, you know, you go from trying to beat people up to driving a car. Uh, It was a little, eh. The Riddler building a NASCAR track under the city was tough to stomach, but it's like, damn it, somebody built the engine to drive this thing and all the rest of that. Somebody needed to get their money's worth out of what they put into the dev for the car and all the rest of it. So I like the racetracks much better than some of the Riddler puzzles where you have to like 
throw a batarang and then set a charge off at the same time the window opens and the batarang flies through. Yeah. I'm I'm psyched you completed all that shit, dude. I never would have the fucking patience. Yeah, and let me tell you, when you you know, Arkham Knight versus Arkham City, Arkham City is obviously three-dimensional, 360-degree gaming. That's my favorite. And I like it a lot. The main value when you move up in the series like to, like Arkham Knight, I think, is the, the combat engine is phenomenal in Arkham Knight. I mean, everything feels punchy. It's so good. Arkham City was was an evolution to get there, so it's good. It just it felt the the combat felt softer than it does in uh, in Arkham Knight. But but on the subject of like the Riddler puzzles, the level of three dimensionality in the the environment itself is so much more in Arkham Knight that finding those goddamn riddles was half as hard. And you had a freaking map, a heads-up display map that's like, no, it's right here. But there were so many nooks and crannies in that environment. And honestly, it's my only real criticism of the game is the environment is so beautiful that it's hard to know the difference between scenery and what you're supposed to interact with. We kind of moved from comic books back to Arkham. That's okay. You quoted Peter Griffin a few minutes ago. Earlier tonight, I heard a fucking yabba-dabba-doo quote. Uh, again, this is while I was preparing dinner, so you guys are going to have to bring me up to speed on what the fuck yeah. is going on there. I asked Carl, what should I be reading? And he brought up that the Flintstones are back in comics, I guess, as a DC title. Nice enough to pull it out on his tablet and let me read half of the first issue. It's really good. I'd pick it up. And I'm not a Flintstones fan, but it's a reimagining of those characters in our world. Is Flintstones fan, is that a thing? Oh, there has to be, right? Yeah. Like there's a fanhood. Like people cosplay... Bam Bam and Pebbles. It's funny you say that because Dan and Selena, two good friends of ours, and Heather and I were talking about going as Barney and Wilma and Fred and uh, Betty. But that probably came out of like a drunken conversation and not out, out of the fact that you guys are like belonging to some kind no, of you're right, 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 right. <laughs> bedrock fan club. Right, right. <laughs> you know, let's talk about the Flintstones for just a second. We'll get into the comic book. I mean, it was a cartoon that was on in primetime in the 60s. That in and of itself is significant. Everybody hangs so much on, uh, you know, the Family Guy or the Simpsons, and, and, and rightfully so. They're both excellent properties. But, you know, in the 1960s, you had people tuning in in prime time. I believe it was even in black and white at one point. It was. Yeah, and it did so well that you got the Jetsons, which was, you know, just the funhouse mirror futuristic version of the Flintstones. And it played on a lot of important themes. And here's the thing, like I'm not some crazy Flintstones fan. I'm just remembering this and kind of viewing it as a cultural artifact. The story on the Flintstones comic book is when I get my comics every week, I will pull down a file that has basically everything that DC put out that week. And so I end up with some stuff that, you know, I just throw away because it's just not something that's in my wheelhouse or whatever. But lately they've been doing some experiments. Like they started a new Scooby-Doo line that again was this refreshed, modern retelling of Scooby-Doo. I was on an airplane. I, you know, I got nothing else to do. Let's check it out. And I really liked the Scooby-Doo redefinition that they did. So like, all right. So we got these other Hanna-Barbera properties that they're playing with. So I picked up the Flintstones just for fun to check it out. It's incredible. It's a really, really well done, thought-provoking, limited run that did exactly what the original Flintstones did, which was, to use this term again, it was a funhouse mirror criticism of modern society. And they've redone that again in this comic book, but done it in a very high-minded intellectual way. It deals with existential topics like the concept of even having possession in the first place and the effect that having possessions has on people and what it does to their priorities. Religion gets invented. The god that people initially pray to in the Flintstones universe is uh, named Gerald. It's Gerald. The Great Gazoo gets involved in it. He's kind of this like time cop character who's evaluating whether or not human beings are worth trying to save in the first place. Easily one of the most reviled characters of cartoon history, but I would say. But he's instrumental to this story. I mean, without him, there is no glue that holds this whole thing together. There's a Carl Sagan character. They deal with subjects of monotheism. They deal with subjects of like monogamy. And again, deal with it in this way that it's like, they hold this lens up to primitive man and say the concept of monogamy was irrational for primitive society. 
And then you look at it through our modern lens and you go, well, we have some of these very same problems that, you know, people change so much in their lifetime and maybe they're not supposed to be with one partner because people change so much, so on and so forth. And it deals with these subjects. It was genius. Stony Danza. Stony Danza, <laughs> right. I mean, fuck, Stony fucking Danza. The idiot mayor, which we all know he's a stand-in for somebody else, getting a low-grade celebrity to jingle the keys in front of the population to get them to buy new dinosaur armor instead of funding a children's hospital. That was part of a storyline, you know, convincing people that spending money on defense was more important than taking care of the kids that you have at home. And done in this comedic way in this storyline, it was good work. I recommend it. You said earlier, we've introduced you to stuff. Well, I appreciate this because this is something I can shout out and say I will definitely be reading. I'm generally a capes geek when it comes to comic books. I am too. But this was just so magnificently well done. And if I could put a side plug to that then on the annual, they backdoor it as a pilot, as we both know they did with the Jetsons on the original Flintstones, for starting a Jetsons comic book line. And it's equally as engaging. The initial episode, it deals with subjects of consciousness transfer as adults become older and dealing with quality of life issues. And I don't want to say what that ends with, but if you're interested in it, you will laugh your ass off where when you see where this storyline goes. I will only say this. It involves the Great Gazoo, Booster Gold, and Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. That's a fucking cock tease. All three of us probably acknowledged years ago that you can take any property that's adult and water it down for kids. And clearly you can take properties that were originally intended for kids and adultify the fuck out of them. We're back to Adam West. Just because DC is doing this now, that doesn't make Fred Flintstone part of like the DC books. When you mentioned Booster Gold, I got to thinking like, well, shit, does that mean Fred Flintstone and George Jetson are, are part of the DC canon now? No, but this topic just gave me a boner because you could introduce Vandal Savage into Bedrock. Oh, geez. Like Vandal he's been Savage, there that long? Because Vandal Savage was a Neanderthal. So in theory, he predates the Flintstones. Like the whole Flintstones could end with Vandal Savage coming in and burning the place to the ground. This is an interesting conversation. We could literally pull Fred Flintstone into DC canon by way of Vandal Savage. So Flintstones is owned by Warner Brothers. That's the DC connection. There is a long line of acquisition, but uh, long story short, Hanna-Barbera is now wholly owned by Warner Brothers there you go. through like six or seven transactions. Yeah, so. that actually makes sense because just as a side note to all this, they're also now doing like Space Ghost comics. Oh, they're yes. doing um, uh, Herculoids, Johnny Quest. They're building kind of a Barbera world. There were some great limited run crossovers that they did with all those characters. And those guys were never really my cup of tea beyond the fact that like USA Cartoon Network used to show all those. So you're familiar with them. Alex Ross did something kind of cool with Space Ghost a couple years ago. But, you know, they were kind of a B team or C team version of, you know, Marvel versus DC. But I'm impressed with the thought and care that they put into these books. My fear, and I, and I hope we're getting this out by way of this, uh, this episode, is that people look at it, they buy them, they take them seriously because... I'm telling you, man, that, that Flintstones book is one of the most poignant and interesting written books on the other side of the fence, but in the same category as like kind of Sandman stuff, you know, in terms of it being innovative and different. Sure. And it's funny that you mentioned that. Uh, first of all, thank you for that. I'm actually really looking forward now that we have a mechanism to do this of getting more of this kind of input for you. I know Eric is psyched to check out some Fred Flintstone. Yeah, no idea this conversation was going to go this way. Uh, oh, hell no. That's my favorite thing about <laughs> some of these conversations. But Sandman, that's a property that I'm waiting to see materialize on some kind of medium, especially with the way that American Gods is going. Right. Uh, I think that will probably shine a spotlight on some of Gaiman's other work. But that is also part of a larger discussion about these properties that are are now receiving this curatorship, uh, if you will, and they're creating these kind of self-reinforcing universes. We've got the MCU, we've got the DCEU. Now it sounds like we've got some kind of subset of uh, Hanna-Barbera properties that will become their own kind of universe. We got the first entry in a movie universe this weekend because universal unfortunately has no rights to any fucking comic book characters so they're taking their monsters and attempting to bootstrap what they are calling is it the dark universe dark universe yeah 
Bootstrap is a great way to put that. Again, they don't have comic book care, so what the fuck else are they supposed to take to try right. and create this ecosystem that they want their fans to be immersed in? Right. You guys are both shaking your heads. Regardless of how The Mummy is performing, they've already lined up a slate of, I think it's six or seven movies with right. what I would consider A-list actors. Yeah. I mean, we got Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe in the first one. Yeah. We know we're getting Johnny Depp, Javier Bardem. I've also heard Angelina Jolie and a couple of others. Man. What's next on the slate after Mummy? Bride of Frankenstein is next year. And that's that's got to be Jolie, right? Well, maybe. They've cast Bardem as the Frankenstein monster, I don't think they have cast the bride yet, but that's a rumor. That's the last thing that uh, I read about it. But they've got a Dracula, a werewolf movie. They've got The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Is anybody still want to go see these flicks? You know what? If you'd asked me this morning if I'd have picked up a fucking Flintstones comic book, I'd have laughed in your face. And now, that's exactly what I intend on doing. Yeah. You do anything right, and you can turn it into fucking gold. Do you want to see these movies? I actually intend to go see The Mummy, but it's because I think that Tom Cruise has a string of solid action movies under his belt for the last decade, and that Annabelle What's-Her-Face chick is fucking hot. Here's my thought on this. As responsible reporters of the medium that you guys work in, it's necessary for you guys to refrain from judgment on this as a whole until you guys go and check it out. I'm only a guest, so I can say whatever the fuck I want. (laughs) (laughs) Carl dropping logical fallacies on my show. Here's my thought on this. Like it's something to do? Yeah. Yeah, I dropped a logical fallacy on his couch. Cocaine is Uh, a hell of a drug. (laughs) Fuck your couch. (laughs) We both are in agreement that Penny Dreadful was magnificent. We have no clue how that shit went sideways. We speculate, but we don't really know. But Penny Dreadful was a cohesive universe where they played with the presence of all of these monsters. And it was magnificently done. I really enjoyed it. For the most part. There was some issues that they could have corrected over time. That show was really just hitting its stride. I'm not going to use the word tragic because it's just a fucking TV show. Yeah, right, right. But... It showed that you could interweave those different monsters that we're familiar with in a storyline that was very adult, very engaging, lots of boobies, which is always good for the older crowd. Especially when they crazy boobies. Oh my God. There was lots of crazy boobies. Yeah. Why are crazy boobies hotter? What is it? That's a whole different (laughs) subject. That's a whole different one. Here's my thought on this though. Okay. I think you have monster movies and I think you have horror movies. And I think those are two different things. Okay. Horror movies are irrational, terror, medium, the ring, that kind of thing. Where as an adult, you still are a little spooked by the whole thing just because it's like the horror is so excellently rendered. This is 1950s matinee horror. Uh, You know, this is one step from like Buck Rogers B movies from, you know, serial movies, that kind of thing. What Penny Dreadful did so well is that the story was never about the monsters. The story is about the people that were fighting the monsters. And I think that that's what has to happen in this dark universe is if you can figure out a way to tell a story about monster fighters that's not Penny Dreadful, right? And you can make a cohesive universe out of all of this. Like you said, like Tom Cruise is great in this movie. What this should be is a movie about all of these people that are involved in all of this that are through all of these movies dealing with all of these different phenomenon. And there's people that we care about that are fighting these different kinds of things, right? If you make the movie about the thing, like you have a million examples of like Godzilla. Godzilla doesn't work. Not really. I mean, Godzilla is a a big fucking lizard tearing shit down. Like, how does that make a movie? Is there a plan to have Cruz be like the Robert Downey Jr.? That's what it has to be. It has to be the Monster Squad. I don't think they can deviate too far from, I guess, the basic tenets upon which Penny Dreadful was based, which is you have the characters that kind of get pulled into this dark world that exists you know, one layer beneath what most people are acknowledging. But then the monsters themselves play a pretty big, because they're anti-heroes. Like the character that Russell Crowe plays is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he's going to be probably a hero and a villain. Yeah. Javier Bardem has been cast as Frankenstein's monster. He's a fantastic actor. They're not going to waste him on the throwaway role. You say that, but let's do the tragedy list here. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, a fucking train wreck fucking ended Sean Connery's acting career, yeah, didn't it? fucking yeah. train wreck. And that came from a fairly well-respected graphic novel work. It's Alan Moore, right? What else have we got? Yeah, we got Hansel and Gretel. We got Van Helsing. 
We got the Wolfman. People have tried for a while now to reinvent this. And and maybe that's the secret. Maybe the, the reinvention is that you do this in a more classic way. Didn't we get two Frankensteins, the one with Aaron Eckhart and the one with Harry Potter in it? And James McAvoy? Oh my God, I don't know. Yeah, we had I Frankenstein with Aaron Eckhart that bombed. And didn't we have another Frankenstein movie recently with Harry Potter and James McAvoy? Now, when you're you say right. Harry Potter, you mean uh, Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe? Radcliffe. Yeah. yeah. I have no idea. No, you're right. I think you're right. Had I mean, two it's Potter or it, two Frankenstein flicks. And it, and it failed so miserably that, that I've never I'm heard of it. Vaguely remembering what you're talking about. Right. I don't see how it works. I don't get how they can make it happen. I'm just not a fan of those properties. I think they've been done a lot. I think they transcend what I would call properties. To use an argument I've heard Carl make about Batman and Superman and how you can reduce those two characters into archetypes that have existed long before the word superhero or yeah. what we knew, a comic book. I mean, these are They're God ancient. pantheons. Yeah, exactly. American Gods, in many ways, takes that idea of um, you know something that has been around for a long time. And sometimes Belief. you can pull it kicking okay. and screaming into the modern world. Right. and You can make it true out of belief. Yeah. Werewolves, the kinds of monsters that they want to bring into this dark universe, Dracula, these are old stories. They're stories that have been around for a long time, and those stories are based on even older myths and legends and innate fears that have just always probably existed as long as humans have been enlightened enough to pay attention to those kinds of things. So there's a way to do this right. Is Universal Pictures going to do it? I don't fucking know. But I know that there's a way to take this and make it resonate with something that has been part of our culture for millennia, I would right. argue. You're right. But to do it well, I think you've got to get a director that's in the space of like a Guillermo del Toro, right? Yeah. And someone that's got the wherewithal of someone like Anne Rice to write a screenplay that can tie some depth into a character. And you just hit on a very interesting idea that if Universal wants to do something really good with Dark... You know, Dark by another name is to buy up the properties in the Anne Rice universe because she's been shopping that stuff for years. She owns the rights to everything again. The only thing you don't have is Frankenstein in that world. You have witches, you have vampires, you have werewolves. Werewolves, yeah. You could create Anne Rice Dark at Universal if you really wanted to. And they're well written, but just to be really blunt, they're more... They're a little more twilighty. They are. For. And I don't uh, even mean that as an insult. It's just they're on the romantic because side. Because we would be the object of that insult. Yeah, yeah right. But it, right. it's true. I don't think it has mass appeal. If it did, that probably would have already existed. I mean, it's got two cracks at breaking into the mainstream and failed miserably both times. So you do have to drag it back more towards the macho end of the spectrum. It, it's got to yeah. have some flashbang and maintain some death and some romance. You get the balance right and you can do fucking anything with an idea that's just that old. Eric, do you think that they can do this in a modern age? In other words, can you still tell stories that are based on legend with social media? Is that possible when everybody's got a goddamn camera to tell a story about the boogeyman? To Doug's point, I think if you do it right, you can. I just, I'm not interested yeah. in those monsters anymore. I say that and I'd watch a movie about Jason Voorhees again, but I'm not interested in the mummy. Maybe what we're talking about here, and you maybe you just hit on it, is... Maybe our horror of the last 40 years has transcended the classic. Maybe it's as simple as that, that Frankenstein is passe by comparison to Voorhees. I think they're very similar characters, too. Yeah, yeah that was maybe a bad example, you know. But I got to tell you, I'm way more scared of that bitch from the ring coming out of my fucking television than I am of the Wolfman. That was probably the last movie that I was generally disturbed by and remember having waking nightmares about right. the fucking ring. It changed me. So so maybe <laughs> that's the problem is this dark universe. Maybe it's not universal dark. It's universal nostalgia because they're not scary anymore. Did you ever view Frankenstein no. or Dracula or Mummy? as no. Did they ever scare you? Nah. Me neither. Not a bit. And I think you hit on a great point there. We've never been afraid of those characters. I mean, for as kitschy as the original Nightmare on Elm Street stuff was when we were kids, it was still scary. I mean, especially the early ones before they got into the really goofy, stylized death stuff. I mean, they were scary as shit. Maybe it's as simple as that. We're just not afraid of those archetypes anymore. Were those movies scary back in the day? Or to your point, were they Buck Rogers? I, I don't know. I think they were Buck Rogers. Look at like the original Dracula. What is it, 39? The Bella Lugosi? The Lugosi one? Yeah. I think it's 39. Who the hell was scared of that? Couldn't have been scary. Nosferatu, on the other hand, 
That was some creepy looking shit. You kind of led this whole conversation with there's a difference between a horror movie and a monster movie. Right, And right. I don't think we have to stay in the genre of horror. And clearly this mummy movie is not meant to be a horror it's an movie. Action. Right. Sure. In the midst of saying all of this and all this criticism and all of our tough talk having not seen the movie, right? <laughs> uh, I will say this. As a fan of the preservation of classic properties, everything from Superman to the fucking Beverly Hillbillies, right? As, as somebody that wants to preserve those cultural artifacts, I am very happy about the fact that Universal is making this attempt to curate these very valuable silver screen properties. But fucking it up doesn't do it in any favors. He said butt fucking. Yeah. But fucking it up. Hyphenated? No. Not even a comma. Gotta be at least one colon. Just but fucking it up doesn't do it any favors. That didn't no. make it any better. And it? with as many times as it's been fucked up, those characters will endure. That's the one thing. They're bulletproof. That's- we had five mummy movies before this one, did we not? Something like yeah. that. Well, you're talking about like the Brendan Fraser uh, and I'm talking going from back Fraser for to the, the Rock. Yeah. We've had five before Cruise, and that can't be that long ago. Right. No. Not to jump too far out on a limb on this one, but you have a very similar problem with Arthurian properties. Another flick that came out yeah. this summer. Eight shit doesn't even talk about how low this thing went. Did you watch that? To be fair, I did not watch it, but I did watch Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, (laughs) that was enough. Which is a great source, but doesn't always tell the whole picture right. right. But I read a couple of articles in the midst of it failing miserably. This one particular article talked about how there had been this massive diminished return on Arthurian-based stuff. Going back to Arthur and Guinevere, I think, like early 30s, I think it was colorized, so late 30s maybe, did okay box office-wise. And ever since then, even what's the holy grail for all of us, if you'll pardon the pun? Excalibur. Excalibur, right. I mean, I fucking loved that shit when I was a kid. I still love it. It saw, holds up. Saw, saw a little Helen Mirren booby in that. I mean, it was it was good stuff, right? Fucking Patrick Stewart. In viewing it now, like you watch it kind of kitschy and for fun, but it's still okay. I love it. You watch it through the lens of old sci-fi. Sure. Right? So you forgive its bad effects because it's old sci-fi, right? That's a good way to put it. Yeah. But you take that same story and you redo it with effects of these days and it's a blockbuster. It would have been good. But statistically, Arthurian legend stuff has just repeatedly gone downhill. Each one worse and worse and worse financially. First night with Gear and uh, Sean Connery oh. did horribly financially. Yeah. I mean, it was a bomb. The point to bring this back to monsters then is it's the same thing that like everybody's got this idea that, man, this is incredibly valuable property. What the hell can we do to make people love this again? And that's really the challenge that Universal has. Nobody wants these things to go away, but nobody wants to pay to go see it. So like, how do you balance these two problems? You throw great screenwriters and great talent and a lot of money at it, and uh, you hope for the best. Doesn't sound like they managed to do that with round one, but give no. uh, <laughs> your fingers crossed. Bride of Frankenstein, I like that they didn't go with Frankenstein. They went with Bride of Frankenstein. Really? That's a take okay. that is not the typical right out of the gate, what you think for Frankenstein's monster. So I have a clarification question for either one of you then. Okay, so Frankenstein, of course, is not the monster. Frankenstein is... The doctor. The doctor, right? So Bride of Frankenstein... Isn't really the bride. It's Bride of Frankenstein's monster. Bride of Frankenstein's monster, exactly. Because he didn't marry the dead chick. He made the dead chick... But that was the name of the original movie that introduced that character. But that had just occurred to me that there was an incongruency in the title as we were talking about this, so... Sure. People were shorter in the 40s, too. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. Bringing it back around to something I would like to hear Eric talk about. We drew the parallel between Frankenstein's monster and Jason Voorhees. Eric, what are you playing? I'm playing Friday the 13th right now. Nice. And it's not the greatest game in the world and not the most polished game. But as a fan of the series, it's amazing. Seven counselors. One person gets to play Jason. So the counselors are trying to work together to escape. Jason's obviously trying to kill everybody are you jason or are you a counselor it switches okay you choose or it switches as you play it's all random okay so sometimes you're jason which is awesome and sometimes you're the counselors trying to coordinate they have the microphones all worked out where you're in game chat you can only hear people right next to you not across the camp unless you get a walkie-talkie jason can't hear anybody but he can see things it's a very interesting aspect and the game has been so crappy as far as servers 
it didn't work for the first week. So everyone's had to get into chat rooms to actually get games to work. Really? And it's really brought the community, at least the horror community, I think, a little bit back together. There's no random matches. You have to work to get a game. And the reason they had infrastructure problems is because the game was a much bigger success than they had anticipated. That's a good problem to have, at least, right? They that, that's exactly what I said. 200,000 yeah. players across all three platforms. They had 900,000 players just on the Xbox on day one. So you do get to play as Jason in the game. But there's kind of a cinematic quality where your perspective shifts. Sometimes you're a counselor, sometimes you're Jason. Or when you log into the game state, you're randomly maybe a counselor, maybe Jason. You start a match and you're there with eight of your friends and one of you is going to be Jason and the rest of you guys are going to be counselors. And the next match, it'll change. Okay. So everyone has the opportunity to play as Jason. Do you get to like kill the naked counselors first? Like the classic shtick in uh, in horror films. What is the rating on the game? It's M. There's no full frontal digital booby, but there's definitely digital side booby. I mean, like, there's a slutty counselor. There's yeah, a, there's yeah, a I mean, nerdy counselor. It's, it's the classic like the moral tale of the horror film that you know if you're if you're having sex or if you're smoking pot, you're you're gonna get killed first. Yeah, they really do it in that. Even when you can tell when Jason morphs to kill you, and it's a VCR skip. Oh, nice. the effect that it gives you. So they really try to put you back in the 80s. I'm loving it. The game has a lot of flaws, but at least the developers have the dedication that they're going to work on it to fix it. This is what I would call a newer game style that I think probably first came to popularity with Evolved. Is that what it was called? And then popularized more recently through Dead by Daylight, where it's a group of mortals, we'll call them, against one overpowered enemy. And you do. You toggle randomly, depending on how your your match plays out that time, between playing the badass, the villain chasing everyone around, or the human. Which one's more fun for you? At first, it was being a counselor, because everyone was really afraid to play as Jason, because if you sucked as Jason, everyone was ragging on you, because people were getting away, getting away in the car and shit. I like playing this Jason now, now that I have figured out his mechanics. And the different Jasons from different movies have different stats. So some Jasons can run, some can't. Some can lay down traps, some can't. So they do a little fan service now. I like playing as Jason. They have environmental kills, too. So if you pick up a girl next to a door of a house, you can just keep slamming the door right on her fucking head and crush it. Throw people through windows, burn them in campfires. So it lets you use the environment pretty extensively as Jason to your advantage. Do you get... The same opportunity as a counselor to Counselors use the environment. Can get like uh, not the environment, but you get uh, you get weapons you can use against Jason. You can actually kill Jason if you do certain things, but you get shotguns, you get machetes, so you can stall him. Yeah. Your goal as a counselor is to get it's the to get fuck away. out. You're not it's you're the, not there to beat him. You're there to get away. You can beat him, but you no. You need to get like a car battery and gas and keys and get the car running and get nice. out. Okay. I want to ask a question that's related to this. It's not specifically Jason, but it's something that you guys both brought up. How do you guys feel about companies releasing product to you as a consumer with the, we're really sorry it's not done. We'll finish it, we promise, while you guys are playing with it, even though you've already paid for it. Again, I have the perspective of a software developer, so I get the necessary evil of that sometimes, but... How do you guys feel about that as consumers? Does that like fucking drive you nuts? For me, it depends on whether it's a big product, like something EA would release and right. charging me for right. it. Or Friday the 13th was kickstarted. Oh, okay. They've promised single player down the road. Hey, guys, we're working on it. So they're almost doing like this agile development model promising to the consumer it's going to get better and better. They tell you that up front. Yeah, when you follow, when okay. you follow a project like that, that as a fan, I supported way different than when EA releases something like Mass Effect Andromeda with strings of microtransactions. And hey, I know online doesn't work. Remember when SimCity came out a couple right, of years back right. and was broken? When Coca Cola releases it and it sucks, hypercritical. When right. a minor studio releases it, I have a lot more tolerance. Yeah. The first time I had that experience was with Batman Arkham Origins, where Montreal took over the property. Again, at that point, I, I work in software. I understand the necessity of, of putting buggy code out sometimes. But I mean, I was fucking livid. I'm like, I can't believe. I was going to ask you about that out. earlier. Obviously, you played it, but you didn't 100 percent that one, did you? Yeah, I really? did. Uh, yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> but I was livid over that because I could not believe that 
you would release an entertainment consumer medium. You know, it's one thing if it's software somebody's using in an office that's like, ah, you got to hit the go button twice, you know, to get it to go. Like, all right, it sucks, but it's your job. You're getting paid to do it. But somebody paying for an entertainment vehicle that doesn't work. I just was curious where you guys were on that. And, And you were shaking your head like you agreed that you would not be okay with it, Doug. Like Eric said, I think it depends. If you've got a big studio that you know has a lot of money, Blizzard spoiled me a long time ago where not only did they not put a product out that seemed fully baked 100% at the time, but then they let you keep playing it and they kept improving it and they gave you all the DLC on top of that. I don't have a problem paying for DLC as long as it's not something that in my mind should have shipped with the fucking product to begin with. If it's a smaller studio that probably needs the funds to keep going, I have no problem paying for DLC either. It really just depends on how good the product is when it ships well, but and that's what you're paying for. I have a problem with Injustice 2 model. I don't want to pay for just fucking extra characters to play. That's just a fucking skin. If you give me hours and hours of additional gameplay that's sufficiently different from the original product, then I'll fucking pay you more money. I think the Injustice characters, though, that you pay for will be significantly different. I'm not talking about the Power Girl, Supergirl. When Adam comes out, when Black Mana comes out, they're going to have their own move sets. That's a way of extending the game. Is it, though? Like, I don't get another four hours of story mode to play through, which was really fun. You said incomplete gaming experience I'm willing to pay for with respect to downloading additional content as long as there's value. There's ROI and in, in buying that additional value. But my original question was buggy game content that you're buying and the studios are shipping it to you as such with the promise that we'll fix it down the line. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear. Your game should be 100% tested, and I don't want to say bug-free because there is no such thing. There's no such thing, right, right. But you don't ship a beta product, and you don't fucking make people play to play an alpha, which is... (laughs) It happens way too often these days. And I think that's the bad kind of conditioning. Just like cell phones condition people to accept lower qualities of phone calls. I mean, I don't know if anyone our age even pays attention to the quality of a phone call these days, People forgot what five nines meant. Every time you picked up the phone, it worked, and it sounded fucking great. Right. I still feel that way about not only phone calls, but about video games and software in general. Do not ask me to pay a fucking dime for it unless it's, by everyone's standards, done. I was just curious, as, as software consumers, as, as gaming consumers, whether or not you had the patience to deal with that in your gaming environment the way you would with a beta copy of you know Windows 7 or something like that. Fuck no. Nothing's yeah. worse than something that doesn't work. And it turns you off and it sours you. And it, it, just like TV, if something sucks, there's too much yeah. good shit to watch. There's so many fucking great games to play. I don't mind play. shit that doesn't work when I'm at work, but I do mind shit that doesn't work when I'm not at work. Yeah, on my dime yeah, and on my, dime. my company exactly. dime. Right. On one side of it, shit used to have to ship almost perfect on the NES. But if shit was broken, you're glad that they can go back and fix it now. But I think the fact that they can go back and fix it contributes to the laziness. Sure. Maybe that's where the paradigm shift took place was we can ship shitty code because we're downloading code that we can patch versus before it's got to be on a disk. It has to have an effect. If there isn't some culture of, ah, we could fix it after it ships, then I'd be shocked. We're way over time. We do need to get wrapped up. Thanks for pointing that out. I didn't want to interrupt the dialogue. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. I've listened to the show from day one, and I've really enjoyed it. I think you guys have a lot of potential in this show. I think you guys cover a lot of very interesting topics. And it's like I told you the first time, the most interesting thing to me about your show, going back to the very beginning, Project Challenge. You know, we're going to challenge the listeners. We're going to challenge ourselves. You guys have gotten me to try two or three different things as a result of the content in your show. We talked earlier, Horizon. Love Horizon. It's a game that back to my whole play it on the bike. It doesn't work there. So I made a paradigm shift in the way I gamed. I sat on my ass and played this game. And it was on your recommendation. And I and I really enjoyed it. And there's a couple of other examples that I won't go into that are things that you guys have motivated me to try or something, change something as a result of the show. And I've really enjoyed it and appreciate it. And I've loved watching the show grow. So thank you so much for having me. We made Carl stop exercising while he was playing games yeah i don't think that's, that's a good thing that's a big, he, he told me that earlier and i took that as the best compliment ever yeah. i was like wow i was like you quit working out yeah it's a good game i sat on my ass in the basement and uh took down striders and this isn't something that i've talked about yet but the listeners are benefiting from nonetheless carl and i talk almost after 
every episode these days and, and I get to listen to his feedback and hear his suggestions and I think it's made the show better behind the scenes. It's things that Eric and I have talked through and brought to fruition pretty quickly. So thank you. I'm so grateful that I've been able to contribute in some small way to what you guys are doing with the show. So as a listener who's had the opportunity to be on the show, let me say to all the other listeners, support this show in social media, folks. Link it out on whatever platforms you're on. If you listen to something in the show and you like it and you check it out and you buy it, go to the comment section, link it back to the show. Let people know where you heard about this stuff because the way you grow listenership is by connecting your community. So let people know that this is a valuable source of information about the subjects that you're interested in and bring them back to this because this is how you create community in this particular culture. So thanks again, guys, for having me. And that was worth every penny that we paid him for that endorsement. <laughs> um, did want to give one last shout to Rob, Svelte Assassin. I don't know if I should drop his last name or not, but longtime friend of the Wookiee community. Got a lot of good feedback from him on the Wonder Woman episode. A lot of dialogue. Uh, so I wanted to make sure and mention him. Rob will also be on the show towards the tail end of this month. It's uh, another episode that I'm really looking forward to record with someone I've never met in person, but had some great interactions with over the year. Uh, anything else that we need to talk about on the way out? I don't think so, man. I think we've covered a lot. Here at Project Challenge, we love all kinds of feedback and questions. You can find our email and Facebook details at projectchallenge.com. Follow us on Twitter at OG Challenge and drop a review for the show on the iTunes or Play stores. Huge thanks to all the listeners and supporters. And until next time, stay challenged.